again, I want to say thank you to uh, Crimeaholics for having me on their show, Darren Birch. Uh, I had a 30-year career in law enforcement spanning uh, 28 years with the Phoenix Police Department. I volunteered another year in, in reserve, and then I had a year with the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. And uh, that 30 years coupled with four years in the military when I was in military intelligence with the U.S. Army. Um, and it was a great career. And it all started back um, really when um, I was in high school. I was at a 30K party with my buddies. And thank heavens we had a designated driver because, you know, that's, that's the key. Even though we were too young to drink, we did. You know, we were bad boys. Uh, we were coming home from the from the party. It got kind of out of hand as parties with uh, alcohol and underage drinkers will often do. And so we're driving home and a uh, car behind us. And I'm going to date myself. It was a uh, um, an old school uh, roadster um, that they don't make anymore. It was just a uh, called a javelin. And uh, uh, I guess best kind of example that would be kind of like um got a Trans Am or Camaro or something like that. But anyways, uh, it was in the late seventies and it was getting impatient because we were driving behind a, uh, uh, a large white sedan that was driven by probably some elderly, uh, elderly couple because it was going extremely slow. So we were going slow. We're patient. Well, unfortunately for the occupants in that car behind us, the, the driver was impatient, uh, drove off to the right side, which was a gravel, embankment, uh, lost control, uh, went all over the place, and with a full head of steam, went into a power pole, a wooden power pole, and uh, the power pole exploded, lights went off in the, on the roadway, it was pitch black, other than the sparks coming off the transformer, as well as the uh, fire that kind of started inside the vehicle. So, I never knew myself to be a hero, okay? Uh, you know, growing up, I wasn't, the, you know, the star of the basketball team or the football team or anything like that. I never had aspirations to be a police officer, or save lives or a fireman. But when I saw that car hit that power pole and flames were bursting in the air and so forth, um, I couldn't wait for the driver of our car to stop. I, I just had to get out of that car and run to that vehicle. It's just something in me. And, uh, and he was just, and, and I'm sure he was acting appropriate. My buddy who was driving, his name was Ben, but, uh, my, I rolled my window down and literally jumped out of the car and ran as he was trying to kind of find a place where he was going to stop. I, I, I just couldn't stand it. I was going crazy. And so I ran to the car as I was running to it. Um, the car wrapped around the pole on the passenger side. So the driver was furthest away from the pole, if you will. And it hit like mid car. So I was trying to open up the driver's car thinking it was an area away from the impact. Well, a lot of motors and so forth will tell you today that, you know, that's the worst, that's the most difficult door to try to open because it's been stretched and uh, it doesn't allow for it. Sometimes the damage side is actually easier. And this was the case in this scenario as well. So I couldn't open it. I go on to um, around the front of the car. My, my buddies are still parking. And I fell over something. It, I, at the time, I thought it was maybe just a, a log in, in the, in the, in the um, desert where the um, car had, you know, was up against a pole. Uh, sadly, it was one of the occupants in the vehicle. 
that was ejected through the windshield. And this being the 70s, it wasn't tempered glass. It was shards and shards of glass. And she was ripped literally in two. It was like something out of a bad B-horror movie. And I remember lifting myself up off the ground, kind of like in a uh, push-up position and realizing, oh my God, I'm in, I'm literally have my hands on parts of, of her body. Uh, it was horrific. And it did stun me for what seemed like an attorney. I don't, I really have no idea to tell you how long I was just kind of like a shock at what I was looking at. Uh, but whatever it was, it gave me guilt later because I, if I had not froze for that second or seconds, uh, this outcome might've been a little bit different. So that stayed with me quite frankly. And so I run over to the other, I finally get my bearings, if you will, my, get my composure back. And I run to the other side. Uh, I'm able to open that door just enough to squeeze in. By that time, my buddies have, have arrived. And I'm able to get the, um, uh, the, the person that was ejected was in the front passenger seat. So there's a void in that front passenger seat now where she was. Uh, she didn't have the seatbelt on. And I'm able to reach in and drag out the um, driver with my buddy's help. It was a, definitely a collective effort between the uh, four of us. And we carry him off to my buddy's car, which was the AMC Pacer. Again, I'm going to date myself. <laughs> they don't even exist, nor should they. Um, so anyways, we um, get him and he's no worse for the wear, which is, uns- which is whether you think fortunately or unfortunately, uh, you know, he's the driver. It was his fault, the accident. Um but many times the drivers are protected. I don't know what that is about, the, whether it's a steering wheel effect or what it is. Um, many times, I've seen the course of my 30 years in, in law enforcement is the driver many times is not injured as the uh, other occupants. That's what happened in this case. Um, so now I'm going, after we drop him off, literally, uh, we all go back to the car, the wreckage. It, now the flames are kind of intensifying underneath the, uh, where the, um, tank is, is, which is in the back. Uh, so this, it's more like in the trunk area, if you will. So it hasn't, hasn't um, spread into the inside vehicle yet. At this point, we were able to get the back seat passenger out, which is closest to the door that I'm able to squeeze through and, and we're able to get him out. And again, same scenario. Now we carry his body, uh, the four of us, uh, because no pun intended, but it's dead weight. It's, it's not like the movies where, you know, they kind of help walk over, you know, it's just, it's literally lifting 200 pound, you know, bag of uh, sand. It's just very heavy. So we're able to carry him off to the side. Sadly, by the time we come back, the inside of the vehicle is now not engulfed in flames, but there's clearly flames inside the uh, interior of the vehicle. Um, I'm the smallest. Uh, I had a nickname in high school, called boo i was teeny and so i ended up um without even thinking there was no process of uh decision making here i just you know knew i was the smallest i'm going in so uh, i go in um kind of dodging flames to some degree there's one passenger left she is behind the driver's seat so she's furthest away from me uh in this corridor of, of wreckage if you will it's just a small little space for my teeny little frame body I'm able to get to her, and now I'm just just elated that I've reached her. Um, I I can literally tell you what I was thinking when I grabbed onto her body. I remember thinking, just as clear as it is today, how happy her parents are that I found her. I remember just just almost being giddy with excitement. I I, I I'm going to do this. I'm going to save her. 
So I reach over, I, 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 I grab her and I pull and to my um, utter despair, she's not budging. I mean, it's not even budging. I knew it'd be difficult, you know, pulling her out and they would help me as I got her out. Um, and I could feel the heat on my face and my arms and so forth, but I'm not really getting burnt yet. And so I, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And then I realized, oh, duh, it's this lap belt. Well, back then it was just a lap belt. There was no shorter harness, or at least not to my recollection, there wasn't. And so I'm trying to unlatch this um, lap belt, which is real simple. It's just like the ones in the airplanes today. You know, it's just a very simple lift up procedure. There's not much to it. It's, I'm lifting up and it's just not opening. It's simply not opening. And again, it was like a nightmare. I'm li- like a, a living, breathing nightmare of fire and a seatbelt that won't unclasp. And so I'm trying to do all these things, trying to maneuver a body. The fire keeps hitting me on my arms. I got just a few scars even today that kind of reflect what I went through. Uh, I kept, not, I felt like my body was betraying me uh, because I kept reacting to the flames and, and reacting and pushing myself back away from the flames and again back away from her and so that haunted me even at the time it was haunting me that I couldn't you know just suck it up for lack of a better word and just you know just get burnt and grab her and somehow somehow pull her out and it was just impossibility uh Sally it was absolutely literally an impossibility to pull her up out of that seat belt in the like if you think of it she was like in a u-shape with the bottom of the U being in that seat belt, the way the damage was. And it was just impossible. Uh, she wasn't conscious. She wasn't um, reacting. She was completely unresponsive, uh, which also, if you will, added to the difficulty. Um, it was so at one point, I'm now getting literally burnt. And my, my buddies uh, apparently grabbed my feet. That's the best way I can kind of wrap my head around. I guess it was my feet they grabbed and they literally pulled me out. Um, I sat on the ground in complete, uh, uh, not a fetal position, but just lit, sat on the ground crying, looking at her burning to death. And the image, the, the smell, um, it's one of those things that when they talk about PTSD and you go back there, I sadly had to go back there many times with my and, uh, different triggers and so forth. Um, to, oh gosh, it's probably halfway through my career when I finally allowed myself to wear a seatbelt. I couldn't wear seatbelts. I couldn't do it. And yet the, the first gal died because she was ejected by uh, lack of a seatbelt. So that's not a cognitive decision. It's an emotional one. Uh, and I, I violated every policy in the book by doing it. Uh, but I couldn't wear a seatbelt. Just couldn't do it. Um, and I would have my family wear their seatbelt. Um, so anyways, um, that was my first encounter with uh, a life and death situation. Um, even though I felt and do feel I failed, um, I did not save her. She died. Two people did live. Um, but I did react to the threat. I did, you know, as they say about police officers, you run to the disturbance. You run to the, the shots. You, like firemen, you run to the flames. Um, I know I, I knew I had that in me. In fact, it was in my DNA, if you will. And I think that's very true with most police officers. Most police officers that do this job for any length of time, but certainly a 20 or 30 year career as, as I did, it's in your DNA. It's just who you are. You, you want to help people at, at your own peril. And it's almost self-serving in a sense because it's just in you. It, it's just this, uh, uh, this incredible desire to save lives. Um, and 
another passion, if you will, on top of what's in my DNA, the passion or probably better said obsession to save lives. So I went to the army, I got married. Uh, um, we had a, a baby boy. Um, she felt that she wasn't ready for marriage or being a mother. She took off. I ended up becoming a single father in the very mid eighties, like in 84, I guess it was. Uh, so I had to get out of the army, not because of discipline or anything like that. But when my four years was up, there was not a, a conduit or a, a, a safe haven for single fathers. It was, that was an, an unusual animal. So I didn't have any recruiters running after me, trying to sign me back into the army. It was like, yeah, thanks. It's been fun, Sergeant Burke. Bye. Uh, so I got out of the army, came home. And like I said, I was in U.S. Um, Army uh, military intelligence, which is completely a contradiction in terms. And I'm the poster child to that effect. Uh, I am neither intelligent uh, or, um, or military bred, I guess. But in any event, um, I had the ability to speak some Russian and copy Morse code and send Morse code. There's not a lot in the public sector for a, Ru a half Russian speaking uh, Morse code operator who can both send and uh, receive a Morse code at a rate of 20 groups per minute. Just not a big uh, uh, <laughs> calling for that. So the only job that was really afforded to me was in the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, which they love to refer them to themselves as the family. And a lot of the correspondence I kept getting from them welcomed me, if you will, to the family with just that, literally the family. Uh, it was a good job. There was a, a GS rating. Uh, I can't remember what it was at the time, but the, um, the monetary uh, equivalency was around 20000 which back in 85 was good pay for starting pay. Uh, now, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> that's probably not even minimum wage. But so I was kind of excited about it. I applied for the job, very happy. I was able to, to you know, get a, a secure job for my son who was, you know, just a a toddler. He was like one and a half, maybe. And uh, so I went through a process. It was a four-day process in Langley, uh, me and a bunch of other applicants, and there was unlimited spaces. So it wasn't like we were competing against each other, which was really nice. We kind of bonded in the room and we went through, you know, there's a first the Russian test and there's the Morse code and there's all these different tests and easy of which was typing. And even I could type back then. And uh, so I pass all with the flying colors and they uh, put me into the room to talk about, you know, the salary, the taxes, the, the benefits and all that good stuff, uh, like a welcoming um, meeting with some, somebody in a suit. And as we're talking, I kind of mentioned, I said, well, what kind of, um, um, you know, um, school do they have? You know, and I said day school rather than day care. I said day school. What kind of schools do they have? You know, day schools. And he says, oh, you know, your first assignment will be in Crete. Uh, we definitely have school on base, blah, blah, blah. It's going on and on and on. I said, well, I mean, more like in child care. And he goes, excuse me? And I said, child care. And he, so he starts rifling through my paperwork and saying, you're, you're divorced. And I said, yes, sir. Okay, so you don't really need like child care. I said, no, I'm a single father. And it starts rifling through paperwork again. And this time he's kind of getting a little bit flustered and red. And he's realizing there's no uh, screening tool in the paperwork to reflect whether or not you're a single father. You know, you're divorcing your dad and, you know, you're single without children. So uh, he uh, excused himself. And that was actually the last time I ever saw him. Uh, he excused himself, walked out. Uh, 
I waited maybe 10 minutes, not long. And the uh, uh, woman walked in and she was some type of secretary, but you could tell she was probably an executive secretary, a very attractive, very well-spoken and like really dressed to the hilt. And um, she said, can you come with me, Sergeant Birch? And I got up and they're very, very polite about giving you the title supporting you from the military. You know, they're just very, very classy, very classy. I can't say anything bad about the CIA, my experience with them that day. I really can't. Uh, it was the right decision. But as we're walking out, she uh, said, uh, yeah, we went back through your all your, your test scores and we realized there was one error too many on the typing test. And I just kind of laughed. And I said, yeah, I, I kind of gathered something. And she goes, but please let us know if your status changes in the future. And with that, I was no, I was hired and fired from the CIA during the four-day process. And it was absolutely the best decision for them and me. I came home where you really need uh, family when you're a single parent. You need that. Uh, I think I was uh, too young and dumb to realize, you know, that this was not the right fit. Uh, you know, acting like I was James Bond in the military with a, a one-year-old. So I went home and uh, had to find a job. And I uh, end up with um, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, not because I wanted to be a, de a deputy. I knew I could kind of do the job, if that makes sense. But there wasn't a lot of um, job openings. And one job opening that did open was for a jailer. So I jumped at it. I just needed a job for my son, uh, you know, that security base. So I, I applied, got the job. And in no time at all, I realized I had an absolute heartfelt down in the belly hatred for criminals. They were such babies. You know, I worked a graveyard shift at the jail and they're whining and complaining by these, you know, murderers and rapists and child molesters and, you know, complaining about, you know, not having enough toilet paper or whatever. They was always complaining about something and not to say that they're all bad. Uh, there's people that just make mistakes in life and, and they learn from it and they can be rehabilitated good for them. And I'm all about that. I really am. There's two R's. There's either recidivism or rehabilitation. I absolutely applaud any system that affords prisoners the ability to rehabilitate and find a occupation and really does good by them because you're doing good by the community by doing good by them. So I'm really an advocate for um, not really private prisons. I think anytime you privatize a prison or institution, they're looking at their bottom dollar, they're looking at their profits, and that's just not a good mix. And you see a lot of security issues with, with those type of prisons that I've found personally, and actually professionally, quite frankly. So anyways, uh, um, after discovering, I, I really would much rather put people in jail than babysit them in jail. I applied for the Phoenix Police Department. And after a year, a year of processing. Um, it was actually just like a week shy of a year. I got the phone call saying, um, you know, congratulations. We've uh, decided to uh, pick you up. You would be in the academy that starts next Monday. So it was literally less than a week. I think I got the calls Wednesday or, or, or Thursday. And so I said, well, I can't make that date because I want to give uh, the jail two week notice is the right thing to do. And, and they, uh, kind of explained, well, we only have a year to process. We would have to redo the entire process all over again from scratch. You could wait for another year or you might not get picked up at all, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, I guess I'm advising. I'm giving them two day notice instead of two weeks. Uh, the jail took exception to that. They explained to me that there would not be a job if I 
failed the academy and 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 it, i get it you know they're they're losing a lot of people to the police department or or you know how many that was i don't know but um so anyways i i took the chance and the gamble went through the academy i was uh pretty good shape from the army only you know a year removed um so i felt like i could handle it i did became a cop and my first 10 years i just had the best time in the world saving lives i it just fed my soul i was a different kind of patrol cop. Most patrol cops love what they call OV. You you find bad guys, you find them hiding behind stores, you find them in cars that with a white light to the rear. It's that what they call OV work. I was married to the radio. I love the idea that somebody needs help and I'm responding to that radio call of help me. Um, I would shag maybe 20 radio calls a shift i just was a radio whore i just love helping people and uh and afford me the opportunity to save many lives i've been very fortunate and, and blessed in that regard uh it didn't stop the nightmares i still had nightmares doing thinking of my my lady in white um burning to death but i absolutely uh, it did feed my soul nonetheless um there was no redemption there's no um you know, slaying that that nightmare dragon, quite frankly, it stayed with me for um, the bulk of my career, quite frankly. Uh, after, um, gosh, probably right around the ninth year, um, I was involved in a, a shooting. I've been shot at three times on an apartment. Uh, only once was I in a position where I could actually return fire. The other times I was being shot at in a position where I could not return fire without endangering other lives. And that's a, a, a frightening situation. It really is. But the one time that uh, it was a bank robber, he came out of the bank. He had um, some grenades that he was using more for dramatic impression than anything. There were smoke canisters uh, type grenades, but he was using them as if they were live grenades, scaring the people inside, creating mass hysteria. Um, he had, um, um, it was really weird. And again, I know I'm getting hit on myself, but I write, write in the book and I'll get to why I wrote the book, uh, actually three. But when I wrote the book, I really want to put the reader in my shoes during the shooting to explain what happened. We called him Hollywood or actually the detectives that worked that robbery detail referred to him as a Hollywood bandit because he was very, over the top with his charade leading into the crime. In this particular case that I was involved in, he was in a three-piece suit driving a little pink bicycle to the bank. And as laughable as that is, he then goes in a bank with his two guns and a duffel bag and screaming and throwing canisters of grenades on the countertops saying, anyone moves, I'm going to blow us all up. I mean, it was just, he was very scary. Very, very, very um, cruel individual um, to the point where we later found out that he was stalking some of the uh, bank tellers and uh, having um, fantasies of rape and so forth. So he wasn't a good guy. There's no doubt about that. But like all people, he has a mother, father, sister, brother. He has someone that loves him. So the last thing I wanted to do was to take this person's life. Um, but unfortunately, that's what I had to do. And uh, I'll, I'll leave it there, let the readers read the book and about the shooting. But it was kind of like a, a gunfight at the OK Corral. So I'm going to kind of step up here and, and explain why the book was written. At the end of my 30-year career, 
Uh, I had worked 10 years in patrol, 10 years in detectives, and then 10 years as a sergeant in detectives. So I worked everything from burglary to homicides. Uh, but my love, my passion, if there is a professional tombstone, it would be as a sex crimes detective. I got the most rewarding value from working those cases. I felt I could truly take a victim and help them survive and become a survivor and able to help them with that process. If I did my job right and um, and the system did their job right, and they don't always do that. And detectives don't always do that, unfortunately. And not that I'm perfect. I'm sure there's cases I had that I was less than stellar, but I definitely had, like most detectives that I know, um, you, you risk your life, your, your family, your, you sacrifice, I guess is a better way of saying it. You sacrifice uh, for these victims because they're all victims to us as a, the report comes in. And then it, it's us to do our job right to help them become survivors in this horrible thing. Whereas in homicides, they're dead. They didn't survive. And it's a very, very daunting task. And it's um, one that I, I guess I wasn't suited for because I did it for a short time and, and I wanted to get back into sex crimes. And then when I became a sergeant, I did go back for a year as a night detective sergeant in a homicide unit where I would help my guys and we investigate suicides, in custody deaths, uh, excuse me, in custody murders, uh, unknown death, um, industrial um, deaths, all those deaths that are not natural are called homicides. In that grouping of homicides is murder and suicide and so forth. A murder is simply a type of homicide, if you will. So our squad would take these calls. So I did that for, oh my gosh, um, like I said, a year. And then tragedy struck me. Um, I lost my son. Um, he uh, passed away suddenly without me having any clue. Uh, I found him and uh, I could not do my job anymore. Uh, I, I took three days bereavement leave, which I've always kind of joked about. If you're in a plane and somebody next to you say, hey, did you hear the pilot lost his son four days ago? You would not want to stay in that plane. <laughs> you would get out of that plane. The idea of losing a child and having, you know, three bereavement days, you know, sorry, it's just not enough. So um, I took vacation, which is, I, I hate even saying that word because I sat around in a, uh, a bathrobe and just uh, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was fortunate. I remarried and had a daughter. So I did have a, a child and had a beautiful wife and they saved my life. There's no doubt about that. Um, but when I went, did go back to work and I'm going from um, death scene to death scene and seeing kids, I did have what they call that flashback. Instead of being there, I was holding my son in my arms on the bed where I found him. So I couldn't stay there. Uh, I had, I figured I was just going to retire at that time. I had 20 something years on not much, like 20, probably 21, 22, maybe. And um, a dear, dear individual was lieutenant on the department by a name of, um, Lieutenant Zing, uh, Mark Zing. I always have to say it's the lieutenant part first because I always supported him that. I would never in a million years call him Mark when I was a cop. Uh, he was Lieutenant Zing, but he was a great guy. And he reached out to me and said, I'll be a perfect fit for the Challenge Crimes Unit. And one might think the last thing you want to do as, as a grieving dad is work child crimes, but it allowed me to get away from the death scenes because that's the night detector's job. It's one crime scene after the next that's what your that's your gig whereas uh child crimes 
unfortunately, in a sense, there's very few crime scenes. Um, most um, child crimes, they're, they're delayed reporting. Uh, there are those cases where it's a, a abduction and that's clearly a scene and so forth. But those are the, those are really the exception to the rule. You know, the 90 percent of the child crimes that detectives see are delayed reporting. And it allowed me um, a unique opportunity as a detective where I could embrace advocacy. As a detective, I never really had that opportunity. We were fact finders. You know, I hate to use the. Um, 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 oh, my gosh. Um, came with Dragnet. Dragnet, Joe Friday, his, you know, facts, ma'am, just the facts. You know, we joke about that, but really we are there as fact finders. We're not working on behalf of the prosecution. We're not working on half of the defense. We're working on both their benefits, you know, both um, incriminating evidence as well as exculpatory evidence. You know, we're there to find the, the truth to the case. Lawyers are there to win, <laughs> but cops are there hopefully to find the truth and aren't jaded going into investigation. That's where bad detective comes into play. Uh, bad detectives think they know what's happening and they work to that conclusion opposed to working to it uh, where, the, where simply the evidence leads you. But any, anyways, um, child crimes was different in the sense that a, a child who's four years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, doesn't matter. As a detective going in and talking to them, you got to put them in a safe place. It's the first thing a child crimes detective tells the, the child, and I will say victim, you you have to put them in a safe place. You have to be on their level. You have to uh, communicate with them. Number one, you got to establish their ability to comprehend instructions and so forth, because you have to give um, open-ended questions. You can't give closed questions. You can't give them yes or no's. You got to say, what happened? Tell me about that. And some aren't capable of that. So you have to do a baseline to even see what they're capable of. Uh, and so the courts, in their wisdom, quite frankly, um, allowed investigators in the child crimes realm to be an advocate as well as an investigator for these children. You're able to give them a doll. You're able to connect with them. You get them resources. You literally take them to the hand and take them to the next person at the child crisis center, You know, whether it be a doctor or forensic um, psychiatrist and so forth. Um, so, yeah, so by doing that, I really embraced the advocacy aspect of the justice system. It wasn't for me at that point. Now we're, you know, I got a lot of years on. So when uh, uh, opportunity arose where they want, they needed somebody for their Crime Stoppers sergeant position, which works with the media, works with all forms of media, as well as the community. And you solicit tips to the community and you get those tips through a uh, anonymous mechanism to the detectives that's working the case, simply said. It's a tip management system. And so since I understood burglaries to homicide, uh, I thought I was a great fit. I understood victimology. I understood, you know, the concerns of giving these people justice so they can be survivors and not be uh, labeled victims. And I, I just loved the opportunity. But my uh, predecessor, the one that was leaving the job, was tall, dark, and handsome. And quite frankly, I'm short, pale, and average. So taking this position from somebody who loved the camera and the camera loved him, I thought, there's no way I'm going to get this job. No way. Uh, but thankfully, he did such a great job, my predecessor, uh, that he was able to brand the, the, the system. So when I came in place, there was already lots of media um, um, partnerships. There was lots of media relationships. I had that already in place based on his work. So I was able to hit the ground running there. 
And I spent my time focusing on the investigative part uh, and getting the right types of investigations and flyers in the hands of the public. For example, when you look at a whodunit cold case murder where it happened in the confines of a bedroom, you do not have a, uh, a public component. Then you take a shooting in a bar, you have a public component. You're able to take that bar shooting, immediately get it out to the public, let them know there is a $1,000 reward, let them know there's complete anonymity, let them know that no one will ever know who you are, and you solve those cases very quickly, allowing the detectives to work on the, uh, the, the forensics and things they need to do to solve those cold case uh, whodunits where you don't have a, um, where all you have is really a list of suspects based on the um, relationships of the victim and so forth, the, the victim and suspectology and so forth. So I really concentrate, I kind of did a paradigm shift in terms of what we kind of throw our efforts into uh, hit and run fatalities, uh, you know, things that happen in the public and we increase the arrest by 50%. So the beautiful aspect of that is we solved crimes. We made the place safer. The downside is we paid a lot of money in rewards. <laughs> we paid so much that I felt guilty because we had to reassess uh, how many, how much money we'd pay. Um, you know, I can say it now because I would, could not say it then. We we're getting to the point where we're about ready to break the bank. Uh, and this is a bank that had, you know, a couple of million dollars. Uh, so we were, so I felt guilty in a weird way, for lack of a better phrase. And when I say I, my, my team, you know, I was the voice and the face on TV and radio and so forth, but it was the hard work of the three detectives, um, you know, shagging the phone calls, the anonymous phone calls, and the uh, and then we incorporated the uh, social media involved and so forth. So uh, they're the, the true heroes, the uh, silent witness heroes. In any event, uh, I'm ready to retire. I retire. And walking out of the... Um, the studio one day I had a gig with a rock and roll morning show where it became very popular it was in about 2009 to 2010 and again this is the end cap of my career when I was a silent witness sergeant which is a crime stoppers program I would go on to the uh, live in this rock and roll um, platform and do the tip of the week, you know, the crime of the week and talk about what murder we're looking for, what rape is. It was always a major felony, violent felony. And then afterwards, it lightened the mood because it's, you know, definitely a dire topic. Instead of talking about stupid suspects, which they wanted me to do, I didn't really trust the internet. I couldn't vet it at that time. I didn't trust it in terms of what was real and not real. So I would just tell these stupid um, suspect stories that I knew about, that I experienced. But uh, I found that most of the stories I was telling were dumb, daring dilemmas. Uh, my the things where I put my, you know, foot out and uh, trip myself. Um, so I would tell these stories, and they range from everything from locking myself out of my patrol car at a uh, major, major accident with two drunk drivers. I had nowhere to put them. To uh, chasing a cow down the middle of the downtown. Uh, to all sorts of crazy patrol stuff. And the book covered my 30-year career, but really primarily was focused on patrol because it's kind of, in a way, family-friendly. 
uh, it wasn't really until you get into detective work and homicide and, and the uh, sex crimes that you see that deplorable stuff, uh, really, really weird stuff. Um, people putting things where things don't shouldn't be going. Um, some some really funny stories. I won't lie, they're funny, but they're demanded. But that I let save that for like the last you know ten chapters of a thirty chapter book. But the last chapter, um, again, having unfortunately experienced the death of my son. Uh, when I went, I had to go to trial on a, uh, a serial shooters. Uh, it was Dale Hauser and Sam Dietman. And I was involved to the extent where uh, I, if you will, stumbled on one of their first uh, murders. And they, they were murdering people at a high rate. They were killing everything indiscriminately, uh, what they referred to as recreational shooting, where they shoot everything, dogs, cats, horses. Uh, they would just shoot anything they saw. And if somebody was walking alone, they were shot too. And a gentleman was on a bus stop, unfortunately, uh, Reginald Molinard and bless his heart. He was shot in the neck. And so I got to this, I got there. I was, um, somebody else had seen it and unbeknownst to me that that person called it in, but I didn't hear the call because I was already there. I was literally there within seconds, saw this guy kind of flailing and acting crazy. I drove up to the bus stop and I saw, um, unfortunately, Reginald um, bleeding to death. It was literally shooting a, a, um, a, a fountain of blood out of his neck. It clearly hit the uh, carotid. And so it was it was pumping like a fountain, literally. And I noticed that the pooling of the blood where it had spilled was relatively small. So I knew I was, you know, literally johnning on the spot. It had just occurred. So I was... And I'm laughing now, not at the tragedy, but at my fumbling with my my radio to try to put out the, the description of the suspect vehicle. My other hand trying to stop the bleeding. At the same time, talking to uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember his name now, but such a nice gentleman that was uh, you know that was flailing and and getting my attention. Uh, and I was doing that all the time, talking to Reginald, telling him to you know stay with me, stay with me, look at me. And he was. He couldn't talk, he couldn't speak, but his eyes were directed at me. I was, but then at one point I was losing him. I knew I was losing him and on the ground. And I was having a hard time with the pressure of the blood and my hands slipping. Cause I couldn't, I didn't, it wasn't like the movies where, you know, right where the blood, right where the, the um, entry wound is, it's slippery as hell. You got blood everywhere around the neck and the clothes and the face. And so you just try and put pressure where you think that wound is and blood will seep out. And I saw on the ground, a shoe and it had this really clean rubberized uh, toe section and it was um oh gosh you know what i can't remember what kind of uh, brand it was i really can't but it was really clean white and i remember just like it was like almost you know the heavens opened up and went oh and uh, i grabbed the shoe and i slapped it on his neck and it worked like gangbusters it completely sealed the the wound um his, his coloring started coming back. He was looking at me again. Uh, and I said, stay with me, stay with me. And uh, I, I was able to save his life with the help of uh, one of my troops arrived at the scene to bail me out. They had a pressurized bandage, so I didn't have to use a shoe anymore. Uh, we put a pressurized bandage on him. And unfortunately, uh, no one saw the vehicle. Unfortunately, and no offense to the witness, he was a beautiful human being. Uh, his description was a black car. It, he wasn't able to give any any details, and and so unfortunately, there wasn't a lot for my uh, my guys and the other squads to look for. And unfortunately, they had a uh, a two year reign of terror 
where and that was one of the first cases. So the reason I tell that story is I had to go to trial and testify, and I had to do it on my late son's birthday. And there's no worse day for a, a grieving parent. And 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 I'm usually you say things arguably or or you know my perception, but I'm, I'm guaranteeing you will never find a parent that will tell you that anything less. The birthday is is even at, in 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 a way worse than the the day it occurred because birthdays are always a celebration they're always about the future they're always about the the beautifulness the the day of the death is always horrible you know it's horrible you know it's disgusting and, and you know there's no memories of that day being a good day whereas the stark uh, comparison to you know the future to now the past on that uh, that sad anniversary of the of birth I, I just hate that day and I told my prosecutor, you know, I can't testify on that day. Trust me, you won't want me on that day. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a reason we always joke about attorneys. Uh, they have their own agenda. And uh, I was on the stand. So I wrote about that. And that was the end cap of the book. So the, I wrote the book as a fundraiser. And it was successful. It did real well on Amazon. I was shocked. Uh, his first week was a, a, a bestseller. Uh, it didn't sustain that but the first week it was a, a bestseller it was at one top one percent um and it got you know did real well to the point where a publisher wanted me to write another one i wasn't i wasn't i wasn't going to go there um i 100 percent of proceeds went to the nonprofit. i felt really good uh to date i want to say like ten thousand. you don't make a lot of money on books you know because everyone else is making money you know the publisher the amazon the, the stores whatnot um, but what money was made a hundred percent of it went to, uh, the crime stoppers program. So I, it wasn't like I wanted to do another book, but I kept getting people saying they were disappointed with the ending. Like what happened to your son? Because at that juncture in my life, I could not write about it. I simply reflected upon it. It was all the, the paragraph probably in the chapter. Um, and I, I understand it, 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 it was uh, a letdown to some readers in terms of what, you know, this is somewhat significant author. Uh, you might want to, you know, give us a little bit more information. And uh, so, you know, it took a while. It took three years. But after three years of uh, going through, quite frankly, the success of the book and going on these book tours and talking on TV about it and having a uh, <laughs> ID channel producer call me and want to do a show with, with Joe Kinda called American Detectives, that I was live here on Crimeaholics doing a live bit uh, leading up to the show. We had questions and answers. That was, by the way, Kenzie, that was so much fun. And I thank you and Holly for that. That was just a joy to do that. Uh, so anyways, uh, I, I, I reflected on it. And I felt I really kind of owe um, those who really enjoyed the book and felt, I don't want to use the word cheated, but felt, um, I guess cheat is really the only word I could come up with that, you know, what happened? So I, uh, since I had been doing that radio show with what we, I coined as Twisted But True Tales uh, for two years, I had about 200 stories. So these stories for the first book were, I hate to say it, but kind of the, the family-friendly version. You know, there, there are some, I won't lie, I still put a, a thing saying, you know, uh, not for everyone that there is some demented humor in it. There's a uh, a guy who stuck a beer bottle where it shouldn't go, and he tries to get his neighbor to pull it out. Um, and then the son comes home and thinks that the dad is being raped and 
he beats up this poor good Samaritan. I mean, there's some demented stories in his book. Don't get me wrong, but they're, they're the last, you know, the last third, if you will. So I had these really demented ones. And uh, for the second book, if there was to be one and I didn't plan it, but so the first chapter I do explain in detail and it's very difficult. Even today I did, I just finished the audio book for that chapter and uh, I walked out of there as pale as a ghost. Um, uh, it was horrible. I, you know, it really, it really is. You know, anytime you do something that's cathartic, it's great, but it's taxing. And um, that was very taxing. But I love the second book. Uh, it's more, it's definitely darker, more twisted. Uh, I don't know if it's as funny. I really don't. There's definitely funny chapters in it. And it definitely has a funny take. I try to, when you see like a horror movie, there's always this comic relief. And there's a reason for that. You need that comic relief. That's why you see cops with the worst demented graveyard humor. You know, uh, we have this more excessive humor. We do. And it saves us. It really does. It does save you uh, when you can laugh about things, not inappropriately, not around people, uh, but among yourselves in the locker room. You got to do it uh, as that um, you're, you're kind of releasing the pressure from the tea kettle that's sitting on a burner that is on high. So um, I wrote the book. And uh, again, um, as I was writing it, that's when I got the call from a uh, uh, dear, dear, dear friend of mine now, a producer of the ID channel, Brianna, um, uh, she uh, uh, called and, and said, do you have something? We saw your first book and they're more into the homicide aspect. And, and uh, the, again, the first book was mostly patrol and some sex crimes. And I don't know if I had a single homicide in it. And because uh, again, I want it to be more funny and family friendly and, and the cover kind of um, uh, reflects on that. You know, the cover is this, this uh, sheep in a crime scene. And, and that is because there's a, a chapter in the book called Sheer Sheep Slaughter, where I investigated uh, just that <laughs> slaughter of these sheep, bless their hearts. And nothing funny about that, granted, but my um, investigation was absolutely Keystone funny, uh, like the Keystone cops. I just followed this trail for about a mile, got to the house and uh, knocked on the door where the blood trail went into the backyard. And Nicest lady in the world opened the door and I said, I think you may have some dogs that ate some sheep. And she goes, no, I got the nicest dog in the world. You're definitely, you know, barking up the wrong tree or art. And uh, I said, no, I, I, I think they are. Can I come and take a look? And I was very nice with her because she clearly, truly in her heart of hearts believed there's no way her beautiful princesses could do this. And uh, in the backyard were the two biggest, sweetest Rottweilers you ever saw but their faces were covered in blood and meat, meat stuck in their teeth and the whole nine yards and uh, bless her heart. She felt horrible. And, um, but anyway, so that, that story's in there and that's why the cover is, is a little tongue in cheek. Um, that leads me to doing the show with Joe Ken and I, I can't stop doing this show without telling you what a wonderful human being Joe Ken is as good of as a detective he is. And he's, the best of the best. I mean, he makes me look like an idiot. This guy had like a 98% uh, clearance rate. Th that's truly unheard of. He is truly the best of the best. And I mean that this is not just, you know, one cop trying to, you know, blow smoke up another one. Uh, he really, he's the best of the best. He's a good guy. I uh, had a wonderful conversation with him. I said, oh my gosh, probably, uh, probably an hour, probably an hour. And this is unrelated to the filming. Um, I'm filming my scenes in Phoenix, 
Uh, they're filming the Phoenix, Phoenix scenes in New York. So when you see the, the broadcast and you see this crime that occurs in Phoenix and you see all this mold on their uh, walls, and you see this beautiful green uh, landscape. Uh, no, that's not Phoenix. But uh, so my scenes are all are shot in, in Phoenix. And, uh, and, uh, um, and I, I got them to shoot the area where the crime occurred in the hospital and some of the key locations. But the reenactment was all done kind of in somewhere. I'm guessing it was New York where they're based out of um, at least the production company that ID uh, Channel was using for that production, that particular show. And um, so he just called out of the blue. He just called out of the blue and said, uh, hi, Darren, this is Joe. And we had this nice conversation. We we're talking like two uh uh, old timers sitting on rocking chairs telling war stories. That's, and I mean that it was just that funny. Um, you were talking about the, the case specific that ended up being there. It was called that one case. Um, there's other people that are looking at it. So it, it could end up being on the small screen. And that's all I can say about that. In addition to the reenactment that Joe Kinda did, but it could end up being a, a film, quite frankly. Um, and uh, that book led me to meeting a gentleman by the name of Dave Pratt, who is a local legend here in the Valley of the Sun in Arizona. He is a what referred to as shock jock back in the day. In fact, he worked with Howard Stern. They had a uh, national show together, him and, and Howard Stern. And he's just a great guy, committed to the community. So he reached out to me and a beautiful, beautiful man by the name of Jason Schechterly, who was a police officer. And he was only on the job for a year when a uh, taxi cab, the driver uh, had a seizure, kind of lost control or not even kind of about it, but was going at a high rate of speed and slammed in the back of his Crown Victoria, which was a patrol car. He was at a stoplight and his car exploded. Um, Poor Jason's car exploded. He was burnt from the top of his head down to his navel. And when I say burn, I mean completely burned. By a miracle, there was a fire truck across the street. There was the nation's, at that time, the nation's best burn center, literally five minutes away. The firemen were able to pull him out, get him to that burn center, and they saved his life. He's literally a walking miracle. And my 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 arms are up on end because I just love this man. I love how he survived. He talks about it's ten um, percent uh, what happens to you, ninety percent how you deal with it. And he could not be more right. And if there's anyone that can talk about that, it's him. And this this uh, shock jock legend owned a studio. He uh, at, and at that time I was still doing some uh, radio work for a local uh, FM AM FM station. Uh, a show called Cop Talk. So I was used to doing radio and so forth and understood the business end of things. And he asked if I wanted to join Jason and we would have a show called Badge Boys on his network. And I jumped at the opportunity to not just have the show, but meet and know and be able to call my dear friend, Jason Sheckley, who I did not know. I mean, I knew of him. Every cop does practically. And I'm not even saying that sarcastically. Ever, seriously, you know, you ask a cop, you know, Jason Sheckley is, they may pause for a second, but then when you explain the scenario, oh yeah, no, I remember that. Uh, he single-handedly helped um, keep officers safe by going after a certain manufacturer, that, which I will not name. He went after them to ensure that those 
crown victorious, I just give it away, uh, would become safe. And he did a great job in doing that. So I get to work with him and we've been doing this Bad Boy show for, oh my gosh, three years. Um, we just had our anniversary, three year anniversary. And I would say our claim to fame is for bringing these two absolutely beautiful, talented, amazing young ladies, uh, Kenzie and Holly, on our show, The Crimeaholics. And I just fell in love with them after we had them on our show twice. Uh, and it's our third year. So you, you both are due to come back. You, you know that it's in your contract. You have to come back. Um, but anyways, we just love them. Uh, we love anybody with a, a pulpit that talks about service to community. And that's absolutely what you and, and Holly do. You absolutely, you help with, um, you know, missing Monday and with everything you do with these families, giving them hope because not all police departments are good. There are some that lack. Uh, there's detectives that lack. Um, I can't speak for every police department. I can say in my travels, um, 95% of what I see is excellent, but I hear the stories and I look into it and they're true. And that breaks my heart. We all know about George Floyd. He was murdered. There's not a good cop. I'll be honest. I've yet to speak to any cop that says anything other than that, that man was murdered. Um, but, um, yeah, there, there's, you know, there's, you know, this poor. And that's why it's good to have um, people that truly care, that aren't there for some type of disingenuous power trip, uh, political motivation, monetary motivation. There's people that truly want to help community like like you and uh, Holly, quite frankly. So I love you gals, love what you do. I think podcasts, Crimeaholics type podcasts are a natural evolution of Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is the perfect community-based policing program that allows the community to help give tips to solve crimes. Who better to solicit those tips than, than the citizenry that gives the actual, you know, accurate information? That's the only uh, caveat I would give that you know people like Holly and, and Kenzie you know get accurate information and and put out accurate information. That's the key. Um, it has to be. Um, you have to have that relationship with law enforcement, even at sometimes when law enforcement doesn't want to have that relationship. And and I'm watching Kenzie right now shake her head. Yeah, that happens. Uh, officers and detectives, even well-meaning, sometimes um, doesn't want to, um, they keep their cases close to the vest, as it were. And as a detective, working sex crimes and homicides and so forth, I get that. I Sadly, I hate to say it. I get that. You don't want information to be released that you're not ready for to be released. Ha then having gone into Crime Stoppers, I saw the other side of that coin and saw how absolutely effective it is where it's not one detective, 10 detectives. It's an entire community of, of millions of eyes and ears uh, able to provide intelligence. So it's absolutely a wonderful thing that you and and Holly do, and I just cannot thank you enough. But um, so we're here with at Bad Boys our three years, and and now we're getting picked up. And I can't say a lot about it. The uh, ink on the contract is still wet, so I can't talk a lot about it. But uh, there will be a Bad Boys TV show um, in the coming months. You will hear about it if you're interested. You could go to StarWorldWideNetworks.com. You could go to any of the podcast sites and look up Bad Boys. And follow us, and uh, you will see us eventually, very soon. We're already taping pilots and, and second, third episodes and so forth, because uh, we have some of the greatest guests. Uh, that's another thing. As much as I love Jason, uh, the guests, we had a, a, you know, a, 
uh, you can't say former Marine, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine. So, uh, but he was, you know, uh, uh, not a career Marine. Um, he was in the, the Marines for about four years, I guess. Um, had some tragedy. Um, we talk about that on our show, but more importantly, or more significantly is probably a better way to say it. He was on the North Tower on 9-11. He was on the 54th floor when the plane struck. And he gives a step-by-step, literally second-by-second account of going down and surviving. And the what you would think would be the mayhem, the chaos in that um, stairwell was nothing but polite civility. He said... It, and that shocked me when he told me that on the show, I, I, I did a double take. I, you know, luckily there's radio, so you can see my double take, but uh, I was shocked. Um, it was absolutely um, things that you didn't know. We had a guest who survived a truly near beating in the nation's longest held prison guard hostage situation here in, uh, in Arizona, the greater Phoenix area, uh, um, the prison here. They were held into the weeks, uh, female and male guard, and uh, she was brutally raped, and he was brutally beaten half to death. And he, for the first time ever, he talked about it on our show. It took three shows for him to really get through it. And uh, I'm helping him now because, again, I, I wrote now three books. Um, the third one, it was really just to kind of finish it off. Um, I, I wanted to leave it on an uptick, so I wrote the third book so that because both the first book and the second book end on kind of dire note they're funny books for the most part uh they kind of bring out every emotion quite frankly there's there's tragedy sadness compelling entertaining funny um the twisted demented it's really a lot of a lot of emotions quite frankly sometimes in the same chapter um but the last book i wanted to kind of wrap it up and i did and i love the ending uh, i would have to say the last book is my favorite quite frankly um and so having written three books i really enjoy talking to my guests about writing their story everybody has a story it's just whether or not you want to go through the uh trials and tribulations of a publisher but you should write it and, and it's a cathartic journey um regardless of what you do with it afterwards so I've been talking to this particular guest who is a prison officer and uh, the writing book. And it's, it's, it's a cathartic journey. Like I kind of said earlier, it's a rewarding, but it's also difficult, daunting and painful because you're intentionally opening up triggers. So you do it slowly. You don't let people press you in doing it. And, and there's a process in doing it. And there's a, you got to take a downtime and your body tells you, your body will tell you when you need to take a break and need to talk. And uh, I love being that, uh, that uh, listening post, if you will, for those officers that have a story, especially when it relates to PTSI or as people commonly referred to as PTSD, but since it's an injury many times on duty, I refer to it as post-traumatic stress injury opposed to a, you know, that's whatever, you know, the D, I don't even want to say that. It's not, it is absolutely an injury. Um, and that is, if you will, the story of Twisted But True. <laughs> 